This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, it's a worry most parents have, how to prevent your kids from getting into alcohol and other drugs. It's part of our regular series on substance use. An unfortunate side effect of the COVID pandemic in Australia, a bucket load of taxpayers' money has been wasted on clinical trials that have gone nowhere, and selfishness amongst researchers seems to have played a role. Doctors often prescribe unnecessary drugs, treatments or tests, despite knowing there's little point in them, because they're worried their patients will think less of the doctor. That isn't true, according to new research. And Australia's coronavirus vaccine rollout has been beset by challenges and one of the big ones is the fact that we have limited supply of the vaccine that is recommended for the majority of the population, Pfizer. This was frustrating a month or two ago but has now become an urgent issue with the virus spreading in Australia's two biggest cities. Supplies of Pfizer are due to ramp up in the coming months, but people are at risk of infection now. So how do you best manage a finite resource when you're dealing with an outbreak? Some countries overseas have experience which we here could learn from if we're open to new ideas. Professor Nancy Baxter is head of the University of Melbourne's School of Population and Global Health. Hello, Nancy. Hi. So you're studying here, you're researching here in Australia, but you're from Canada originally. And Canada's a good proxy for Australia in a way. They've struggled with vaccine supplies. They've had to import doses. We've got similar geographic uh, challenges ahead of us. How has Canada gotten around some of these issues? Yeah, well, there are a lot of challenges in Canada. Canada was, I think, believed the very first place to um, uh, to license uh, Pfizer vaccine in mid December. Um, but you know, until um, you know February or so, they were vaccinating really fairly few people per day. Um, and even when they got to March, uh, they were only vaccinating about one hundred and fifty people, one hundred and fifty thousand people per day. And remember, this is some place that was having a major outbreak of COVID nineteen. Over twenty five million, uh, twenty five. A thousand people have died of COVID in Canada. You know, millions have have gotten the 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 disease. So this was a place with a big outbreak, and you know, we knew that we had vaccines approved, but just couldn't get the supply. And that's because the supply was not being allowed out of the United States. The United States manufactures a lot of Moderna and Pfizer, which Canada had procured, but it wouldn't wasn't released by the United States. So we were getting it from Europe, but we we're getting relatively small amounts. So it wasn't really until April, May and June when supply started really coming in and it's been extremely plentiful now. That's a familiar story in Australia, right? Yeah. Like we've had We've had drip feeding supplies so far. It's meant to ramp up soon. So Canada has managed to ramp up its delivery. What was involved in doing that? What are the mechanics? Well, they they procured they procured very early. So July, August, they had procured a large amount of Moderna and Pfizer, also you know Novavax and uh, AstraZeneca as well. So they had um, done uh, you know tried to hedge their bets with uh, all the very major types of vaccine to make sure they had enough really of any type so that they could vaccinate everyone because they just wasn't sure they weren't sure what um, vaccine was actually going to work and uh, no one knew what was going to be effective so they actually bought um, per capita a, a large amount of vaccine and when you think about it from a global perspective really kind of tying up all that vaccine um, really kind of means that other countries aren't able to access it um, but nevertheless Canada wasn't able to access it for you know months before uh, it became more available when you know the vaccine rates in the United States started dropping off. So one of the things that's been reported on a lot from Canada is the fact that they were giving out first doses and not holding back supply for second doses, and they were extending the the 
the gap between the two doses of the vaccines. What is that like? Is that a good thing that they did? It's- yeah, so I think there were a few strategies that Canada did to try and kind of use a um, an amount of vaccine that just wasn't enough to do the job, um, so to try and um, help more people. So one of them was, as you were saying, they were focusing on first dose. Now, this was in the days of, you know, COVID 1.0 or of alpha, where one dose was, was fairly effective at um, stopping spread and stopping disease. We saw that from um, Israel when they started vaccinating with Pfizer. Uh, it, it really only took two weeks before they saw the uh, the um, uh, hospitalizations and deaths start to go down. So what they did was, and it started in Quebec where the outbreak was the worst, they started focusing on first dose. And what they did was they committed to getting the second dose in people in a, within 120 days. So within four months. And um, now kind of it, it's, it's much shorter. So because they've gotten plentiful uh, amounts of Pfizer and Moderna now, they're actually being able to make that interval much, much shorter for people. And they're really focusing on the second dose. But by focusing on the first dose, it it allowed them to get some protection into a large number of people. Now, what's interesting is initially they had only Pfizer. Now they're getting Moderna. So they now have more Moderna than Pfizer. So they've actually approved a mix and match. So they're recommending to people that if they had Pfizer, uh, you know, because Delta, it's most effective if you have the two doses of the vaccine. It's the one dose still has some effect, but, you know, much better off if you get two doses of the vaccine. They're basically saying, you know, go and get um, Pfizer or Moderna, no matter what you had before. What What's available is what you should get. And you should you should um, feel protected with that. So, you know, a lot of a lot of things being done in Canada that you probably wouldn't do if you weren't in the middle of a raging pandemic. Um, but they really are. We've got outbreaks in Australia's two biggest cities, like we said before. Are these things that should be considered in Sydney and Melbourne? Well, I think the first dose strategy now that now that you have more Pfizer is 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 a viable strategy. You know, we know that there's going to be plentiful supply in just a few months. So it may be worth kind of vaccinating as many people as you can with the first dose and then adding the second dose when the supply of that is more plentiful. So I, I think that that is, you know, a reasonable strategy to do. There are a few other things that Canada did that I think are useful to consider. One is hotspot vaccination. So it's quite a sad story. So, um, you know, there's some areas of, um, of Toronto, um, similar to here with, um, you know, a lot of immigrant populations, kind of lower socioeconomic status. Uh, and then the people that have a lot of essential workers. And these regions in Toronto were, um, had higher rates of COVID cases, COVID illness and COVID death. Um, but then what they found was, you know, when the vaccine was in short supply, they actually had a low rate of vaccination and it was it was areas that were you know rich areas of town uh, where people were working from home and there were low rates of cases low rates of illness and death they were the places that really had the high vaccination rate and so um, you know unfortunately it kind of happened around the time that a a 13 year old girl died in one of these areas that they decided to actually um, prioritize these hotspots and they actually closed some of the vaccination sites in the more affluent regions of Toronto and moved all the doses of Pfizer up to Peel, which was the region where um, where there were these outbreaks. So moved the doses up to there and really focused on these hotspots to get as many vaccines into people in that area as possible. They also mm-hmm. reduced the age criteria there. So instead of like they were, I think at that point, they were at the at the 50, um, 50 and over everywhere else. But in those hotspots, it was basically anyone could get Good vaccinated. Things. Good things for Australia to consider. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome.
Professor Nancy Baxter is an epidemiologist, surgeon and head of the University of Melbourne's School of Population and Global Health. You're listening to RN's Health Report. Yeah, so they could listen to that about southwest Sydney and, and parts of uh, Melbourne. Mm. One of the good things to come out of the COVID pandemic was that it accelerated research on a lot of fronts, including vaccines and deeper knowledge about the immune system. Internationally, there were some spectacular treatment trials, like the enormous recovery trial in the UK, which used electronic records in the National Health Service to recruit massive numbers of people with COVID and discovered early on that hydroxychloroquine didn't work and that a $6 a day steroid, dexamethasone, reduced death rates by 20%. In Australia too, there was a substantial flurry of clinical trials, but an analysis out today in the Medical Journal of Australia has shown a disturbing degree of poor science, waste, and what could only be described as selfish behaviour on the part of researchers. Professor Angela Webster is a clinical epidemiologist at the University of Sydney's National Health and Medical Research Council's Clinical Trial Centre, which did the study. Welcome to the Health Report. Thanks for having me. What did you do in the study? Well, we wanted to have a look at uh, the kind of activity and research that was going on focused on COVID in Australia. And so we looked at the Australia and New Zealand Clinical Trials Registry and also clinicaltrials.gov, which are registries which capture clinical trial activity. Over 95% of the, the, the trials that go on uh, happen in Australia are registered on one of these. And we looked for the, 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 the evidence of COVID trials that were recruiting patients in Australia and decided to uh, examine what uh, things about those trials, the way that they were focused, what they were going to do about data sharing, uh, what they were actually what they were actually delivering. And what did you find? We found um, between January and November last year, we found there was one hundred one thousand six hundred um, over one thousand six hundred trials, and of which eleven hundred were recruiting in Australia. And of those, about sixty eight were uh, trials on COVID. Fifty six of those were targeting COVID directly, and another twelve were looking at other effects of the pandemic, such as impacts on mental health. And the where we all, found that sorry, go on. Sorry. Go on. No, I was going to say, and of those, we found that most of those were uh, only four were finished of those trials. The others were either recruiting at the time or planning to recruit patients. And when you looked at the design, the design was wanting. Uh, to a certain extent, yes. We know that there are certain innovations that can be used to, de to deliver research quickly. And there were some innovations that, tri that trialists had used. They'd used innovative ways of recruiting patients, digital ways. Uh, they'd used uh, telephone and uh, video calls where normally they'd do things face-to-face. -face. And there were some other innovations in the way that the things they were testing, like nanoparticles for delivering vaccine, that's very cutting edge, and some other innovations. But innovations in the fundamental design of the trial were lacking. We know that we can use some statistical techniques which allow, called adaptive design trials, which allow you to change up the intervention you're delivering, the drug you're uh, delivering, and adapt to evidence that shows maybe some things are more promising than others and drop the ones which that is what, are Which is what the British did in the recovery trial. Exactly. We found only two of the trials in Australia were using adaptive design. So the innovation in the way that trials were carried out and fundamentally designed was really disappointing. And they were too small often to, make it, to actually find the answer that they were looking for. Exactly. Like the average sample size in these trials was 150 patients that the trials were aiming to recruit. Whereas we know, the, for instance, the, the trial you mentioned in the UK looking at steroids uh, for, for COVID pneumonia needed over 4,000 people to show a difference in mortality. Uh, the trials that were, happy, were um, happening in Australia were really small and they also often weren't measuring the things that really matter, what we call the core outcomes. And we what, found only half, of the, only half of those trials measured mortality. 
And gobsmackingly, last year, I, I still found people doing study trials into hydroxychloroquine when we knew it was a useless drug. We found over six of those, yes. Although um, I have had a look, quick look in the registry since uh, we finished this research uh, at Christmas time, and it's only just being published now, so there's some delay there. I had a look at the update, and many of the hydroxychloroquine trials that were being undertaken in Australia have now been abandoned. Um, but that's, that represents some waste in the effort, of course. Well, talking about waste, have you got any sense of the funding? Uh, we did. We own about 70% of the trials we looked at weren't did had no form of commercial funding at all, which suggests that they were either from philanthropic or government sources. We couldn't analyse further than that. But we did find that uh, a rather disappointing commitment to sharing data beyond the end of the trial. By sharing data onwards, I mean, the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors says that sharing data is an ethical obligation because it allows you to maximise the value of the research you've undertaken by on sharing the data so it can be reanalyzed and get some really granular findings about who might benefit or be harmed from certain interventions or, or approaches. And we found that over 80% of the trials had not, had not declared a commitment to share their data and about 70% actively said they weren't going to share their data. What's going that's on really there? Disappointing. What is going on there? I mean, we, we, they bang on, the National Health Medical Research Council has been banging on for years about what a wonderful collaborative research community we've got. Yeah, you're right. I mean, true. we had a look. We know we had a look at some of the reasons, and there is some confusion. Um, about f half of the trials gave no reason at all for why they wouldn't share their data. Some, um, about another 20%, had a mixture of reasons, such as worrying that they could do this with whilst protecting the participant privacy. So worries about protecting the privacy of the participants in their trials. Some um, stated that they lacked ethical approval to onshare their data, and some. So about those another, are pathetic reasons. You know, they're de-identified data, and you've just got to submit to the ethics committee. I mean, really. Well, you'd think that it could be built into the trial. I think in some of the speed of um, trying to get trials going, people were forgetting that they had a commitment and a duty to maximise that public investment in their research. So, so on-sharing on -sharing data is an incredibly important part of that, but often an afterthought by many trialists, sadly. So presumably, you know, with so few trials completed and many still recruiting, and there's already a high failure rate in clinical trials in Australia in terms of getting them off the ground. Not a good sign. Now, was there, was there a gap in what they were studying? I mean, they, they were, in other words, was there missing, were they missing research? I mean, that's a very important point. The, we found that most trials focused on drug interventions and pharmaceuticals with a, with a limited amount on, on other supportive strategies. But what we, what we really found the gap for was there, was there was no trials of public health messaging or health service delivery or, uh, and the number that were targeted particularly vulnerable populations. So those at highest risk of bad outcomes for COVID. That was only in 10% of the trials. But there was no, yeah, the public health messaging was entirely absent. And given the way that the pandemic has played out in Australia, generating evidence quickly for public health messaging and targeting those most vulnerable would have been the most valuable to Australia. Hopefully some lessons learned. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Professor Angela Webster is a clinical epidemiologist at the University of Sydney's National Health and Medical Research Council's Clinical Trial Centre. Low-value care is a term in medicine that describes procedures and tests that have little, if any, benefit, waste money and can do harm. Think of unnecessary antibiotics being prescribed or an operation where the risks outweigh any potential benefits. So what drives doctors to recommend these for patients and what do patients themselves think of it? And a surprising possible side effect in how long you have to wait to see your doctor. 
Health policy researcher Dr. Prachi Sangavi from the University of Chicago has recently published a fascinating study which has exploded at least one important myth. Thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we've done a lot on low-value care over the years, and we tend to think of it as things like not having an arthroscopy if you've got arthritis of the knee, unnecessary antibiotic prescribing, and so on. And as you rightly say, and you're the driver for the paper, is that a lot of doctors are nervous about denying low-value care because they think their patients will just go down the road to the next doctor. Right. So we don't exactly know what happens in that interaction. A lot of it's based on anecdotal evidence. But it's possible that low-value care is demanded by patients, and that is a narrative that physicians have. It's also possible that some physicians provide it to look like they're doing something for their patients, or they're substituting lower-value care for higher-value care because they're overwhelmed and aren't able to provide the required attention. There's also, of course, financial incentives to provide more low-value care. So why it actually occurs is not clear, but these are the kind of stories out there. But what you wanted to do in this study was actually find out whether or not, even though it is low-value care and it wastes a lot of money in the healthcare system and sometimes causes harm, such as with antibiotics and maybe even arthroscopy, unnecessary arthroscopy, do patients actually appreciate it and get a better experience out of it? Exactly. So we were looking to assess the relationship between exposure to more low-value care and patient ratings. So we wanted to know if the doctors who provide more low-value care are really getting the better ratings that they think they might be getting. So how did you do that? So in the United States, we have Medicare as our large national insurance program for people over 65 years. And we have insurance claims for a 20% random sample of Medicare beneficiaries. And we use these claims to estimate the amount of low-value care that each primary care physician's patients received. This is each primary care physician in the United States. How did you know it was Um, low-value care? So we followed a literature that's pretty established now, and actually one of our co-authors helped develop on identifying low-value services in insurance claims. And the low-value services are identified from professional medical societies that have come together and identified services as being viewed professionally as low value. And the sort of things that you describe there are PSA tests in men over 75, mm-hmm. spinal injections for low back pain, antibiotic prescribing, and having a gastroscopy if you've just got a bit of indigestion. So what did you find in the end when you assessed patient satisfaction in relation to all this? So we found no association between patient experience ratings and the amount of low value care the patients received. The only exception was wait time we found that patients who received more low-value care reported having appointments that started late. And we don't have a very good explanation for that. One possible (laughs) explanation is that... So um, the the GP was so busy providing low-value care, he, he or she had a backup. Right. And so these are physician practices that are running behind schedule and possibly there means that they're poorly organized. And so they're actually providing more low value care instead of higher value care. So what's the takeaway message for this for people listening to us are actually potential patients, members of the public Mm -hmm. rather than physicians. What's the message for the public out of this? The message is, I think, really more for physicians and policymakers. So for physicians, we hope this helps alleviate the stress they might be feeling around leaving patients possibly dissatisfied. 
because they don't do something the patient asked for. It should also alleviate pressure to provide more unnecessary care in order to boost the ratings. And we should say but here that other- Amer- Amer- in the United States, people are obsessed with this, that you rate your doctor and it has an impact on your practice more so than here. Yes. In the United States, this is a really big question. And the reason is because we have a number of large national initiatives that are aimed at driving up competition between physicians through public reporting of patient experiences. And also there are alternative payment models in the system, which actually reward physicians who have higher performance. So from a policymaker standpoint, there's concern that the use of these patient experience ratings could actually drive up the use of wasteful care. So it's an unintended consequence. And so the takeaway message for a policymaker, for at least in the United States here, is that they don't need to worry about that, that patient experience ratings are likely going to provide, based on other studies, we know that they can contribute useful information about the quality of care. And it's unlikely that they're going to be causing damage in terms of driving up wasteful care. Fascinating. So we look forward to a transition to high-value care in general practice. Look, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Dr. Prashi Sangavi is at the University of Chicago. Over the past few weeks on The Health Report, we've been bringing you a special series on substance use. Today we cover an issue that causes angst for a lot of parents, how to protect kids from experimenting with and misusing alcohol and drugs. Parents often feel helpless in the face of media and peer pressure, but maybe they shouldn't feel that way. They make more of a difference than they might imagine. Associate Professor Nicola Newton is the Director of Prevention Research at the University of Sydney's Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. So one of the commonest questions that parents have when they've got a young kid is, I don't want them to get into drugs. What the heck can I do? And they're terrified of it. Well, that is a million-dollar question. I wish I had the exact answer. I do. Well, have... it was nice of you to come on. And thank you very much. <laughs> but see you again sometime. I think the most important thing is for parents to know that they still have an influence over their children's choices when they become adolescents. In fact, they are the number one influence over their adolescents' choices at this age. There's a number of strategies... So just before you go on there, I, mm. I had thought that the evidence was that you're a strong influence in the preschool years pretty strong in the early primary years. But as they get into upper primary, the peer group tends to dominate. So that's, yet again, I'm wrong. Well, I held that view as well for a very long time, Norman. It's only recently that we've found that that actually isn't the case. So whilst it may appear and it may seem at the time that peers are the most important influence in your life, parents still have a critical role to play in their adolescents' health behaviours and choices. So what is it? I mean, is this just saying we're going to set a limit here? You're not going to do this, that and the other. What is the behaviour of a parent that makes a difference? Okay, so there's a number of things parents can do that we know can help reduce the uptake of substances from their teenagers. First is to model good behaviour. If your kids are coming home from school and you're there having a glass of wine every night or a beer, that's not a good look. Don't get drunk in front of your kids and have a good relationship with alcohol. The second one is monitor where they are. Ask your kids where they're going. 
Ask them who they're going with and ask them when they're going to get home. And finally, and probably most importantly, do not supply alcohol to your children. There was a traditional view that perhaps giving your kid a sip of alcohol or a taste here and there, a glass of wine at the dinner table. Training them in a sense, from good alcohol behaviour. That's it, thinking that you might be protecting them then from later harms. But what the Australian research and also research in the US and Europe is starting to show is that giving a kid any alcohol at all is increasing their chance of binge drinking and it's actually then increasing their chance of seeking alcohol elsewhere. And is that because it's as simple as they get a taste for it or is that because even a small amount of alcohol is affecting the developing brain? Well, that's an interesting question as well. We do know that the adolescent brain is developing until it's 24 and some of our recent research is showing that perhaps the brain doesn't recover in a way that it could recover from having small amounts of alcohol at an early age. Just to cap that off then, you've got to be self-aware. So even if you did like a glass of wine late in the afternoon, when you've got adolescent kids in the house, you just got to actually change your behaviour if you really don't want them to pick up a problem. You do. So model like a positive attitude with alcohol. So say no occasionally to a glass of wine or don't get your friends around and drink copious amounts of alcohol with them. Show them that there's other strategies for coping. Go for a walk, use exercise as strategies to cope with everyday stressful life. And what about your style of parenting? Because again, out of date, but you know, if you look at the longitudinal studies in the United States, which look at predictors of good outcome in adolescence, which is first experience of sex as late as possible, first experience of drugs as late as possible, because that predicts a more healthy future for you, that the parent who gives that warm, loving, but firm boundary type parenting got a better result. Is that still true? Well, it's true in the sense that if we can delay the onset of drinking, even by a year, we can reduce the chance of someone then developing a problem or a full-blown alcohol use disorder by 10% each year. So the more you can foster these good communication, loving homes, trying to stop someone from participating in drug taking and alcohol taking early on, the better chance they're going to have and the less mental health problems, the less severe substance use disorder problems they will ever develop. Have you run away from this parenting with firm boundaries? Okay, so talking about different parenting styles, we're working with some researchers in the Netherlands who have led a lot of work in the area of parenting and alcohol use and how different parenting styles can affect alcohol use behaviours. And what they're showing is that you need to have strict rule setting. So even if you drink alcohol yourself or if you take drugs yourself, it's really important that you still have strict rule setting for your teenagers. And those rules are even more effective when you share them with other parents of teenagers the same age as your children. And the other thing that parents get anxious about is the peer group that your child's mixing with and they're getting into bad company. How effective is the peer group in adolescence? You've said that parenting is really important. But again, if we're talking about the firmer style of parenting, setting rules, should you be setting rules about the people they can mix with? Very hard to do when they're adolescents. You can absolutely try, and I think you should try, because we know that peer influence is the number one reason that kids themselves say that they start to use drugs. So yes, we know that parents can be influential in terms of all health behaviours and risky behaviours, but we know that kids still say that peer influence is the reason they use drugs. So the bottom lines here are? The bottom lines here are prevention can be effective. 
it can be cost effective. For every dollar we invest in prevention, we get an $18 return. That is huge when alcohol and other drug use costs Australian society over $10 billion a year. So this is more than just parents and schools. This is, for example, the price of alcohol. Absolutely. Yes. Our alcohol is too cheap. Our alcohol is too cheap. And policy-based prevention interventions are certainly effective, but they can take a long time to come into play. So whilst we're waiting for them to happen, and let's keep pushing that, let's increase taxes, let's reduce supply, but at the same time, let's put in effective parent and school-based prevention to reduce the significant burden of disease from alcohol and other drugs. Associate Professor Nicola Newton is Director of Prevention Research at the University of Sydney's Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. As a parent, I was hanging on every word of that. Yeah, I was going to say, is that just going to change your behaviour with your little ones? I try to do those things already, but it's nice to know that there's uh, evidence behind it. So... Thanks, Health Report. <laughs> well, I, I thought that the really reassuring thing is that because we've been told for a long, long time that you'll forget it after the child's eight or nine, it's all peer group. And in fact, it's not. It's, you can still provide those firm but loving boundaries and set a good example. So, Yeah, nice, nice little ego boost to the parents out there. Yep. So, Norman, it's the time of the show where our loyal listeners who catch us on podcast get to have their questions answered if they email healthreport at abc.net.au. Yep. Well, let's go. So Rebecca's asking, she's saying she's read several articles, predominantly by female trained doctors or specialists promoting a women's health regime, that due to daily fluctuations in women's hormones, a lot of clinical trials for medication, diet, exercise, etc. exclude women who are fertile and that typically females included in tests are postmenopausal. Is this true? What is true is that there's been a scandalous deficit of women in clinical trials probably a scandalous deficit of women conducting clinical trials as well. So, And it's really damaged the relevance of a, a lot of drugs. And it's due to stuff like this, which has got no evidence behind it. It's somehow that your response to the drug is going to vary according to your your, your point in the menstrual cycle. Well, it may, it may be true or maybe not, but if you've got enough women in the trial, it'll all iron itself out. It's not a valid reason for excluding women. Um, the uh, Another reason for excluding women has been in cardiovascular trials is that women have less heart disease. Therefore, you want to do a quick trial, as drug companies often do, and a cheaper trial, you do men because men are going to get a heart attack sooner than women. And again... Oh, so they get their, they get their inputs more quickly. Yeah, but they're not <sighs> that relevant because they're not real world and they're not women. If you actually look, we've covered this on the health report uh, on a couple of occasions. Um, there's a researcher at the Royal... They're all women's in Melbourne and um, Zoe Wainer, who's now Deputy Director General of Public Health in, in Victoria, um, looking at this. When even you look at laboratory research, there's a bias towards male animals. Yes, this is true. I couldn't believe it. Yep. So it goes all the way down. It goes up all the way down, all the way up. All the way and, up. <laughs> and, um, and it's a huge problem because it, it means that you, you really cannot generalise for some clinical trials in the past. They're trying to change it now. And, and the same goes for different ethnic groups. Um, people don't have English as a first language. And that goes to also genetic diversity as well. And these are massive problems in clinical trials where they try and make them as pure as possible and then when you actually get the results, you can do. You don't necessarily apply them. You can't necessarily apply them. We were just talking earlier in the program 
about the deficiencies in clinical trials with COVID, too small, too narrow, and not necessarily studying the right questions. And the population, funnily enough, is 50% female. I've Uh, heard that. Okay, so then what do you do then if you're a woman trying to make decisions about your health if if you're not being represented in these studies? It's got better. But it's not, got a, it's not entirely solved because a lot of the drugs that are being given, go, the clinical trials go back a long way. Um, you can look for yourself in terms of the evidence, and, um, but that's tedious in going back. I think when people start asking the questions of the Therapeutic Goods Administration of the clinical trials that they're evaluating, have they actually represented women well and why are they approving a drug if it hasn't been well represented women have not been well represented in that trial i think pressure on the system will help it ethics committees ethics committees are you know they're much maligned amongst researchers sometimes justifiably so for slowing down the approval of research or having to go through too many of them but you know if you've got a really professional ethics committee i mean there's a good there's a good argument particularly in cancer research and others that you have a single ethics approval that goes across the country or across a state uh, when you've got professional people on it that they should be looking at the design of a trial to see whether or not it is representative of the community. And if it's not, asking why and not not approving it. It's just tough love. It is particularly difficult because I know that women often have mistrust of the health system because of maybe not feeling like their complaints have been heard by the medical sort of sphere in the past. This is obviously something I could talk about all day, Norman. Try, talking to, to, try talking to the Aboriginal community about well, how yeah. represented they feel and they have their own, you know, they have their own medical research group to make sure that... You've got representative groups. This is a huge problem in research. Well, thanks for your question, Rebecca. I think I might do a 10-part series on this at some stage. But for now, let's answer. And what we'll do is we'll put up on our website the interviews that we've done in the past on this so that you can actually reference it. That's right. So let's go to Oliver's question. Uh, Oliver's saying the confusing and ever-changing advice on COVID vaccines is reaching its tolerable limits. Uh, Oliver says pol- politicians giving advice is doing harm to vaccines in general. And is um, is he's concerned, I think, that, that there's going to fuel more anti-vaxxer sentiment. Why is there so many different opinions, often conflicting? Um, why isn't there just one source of reliable information, Oliver asks? Good question. Very good question. So the countries like having their own regulators who that make up that make their own decisions. There is more cooperation between international regulators than you might think. They do talk to each other and they do share information, but they often do their own ground up evaluation rather than accepting the others. Um, which is a, which is a problem, and that prevent that does avoid that does go against one source of reliable information. I don't know why why WHO was really down on mixing vaccines. There's been a good study, um, several good studies now, which shows that it's safe. Provides a very, when I say safe, you do get more of. We covered this. You and I covered this on Coronacast, Tegan. You get more of a an a, if you like an angry response. After the second vaccine, particularly if it's Astra followed by Pfizer, so you feel a bit sicker, you've got a sore arm and so on, but no serious side effects. And that's just, a, as you say, um, Oliver, a potent immune response. But you get a very good immune response by mixing vaccines. And, um, and I think the safety issue has been answered. So I'm not sure why WHO is so down on what evidence they're citing. Um, 
And I think uh, one of the difficulties with this particular health crisis that we're in at the moment is that it's so new and that the research has been coming out in dribs and drabs because that's just the nature of where we're, it's an evolving understanding of the virus and what does and doesn't work. And so it can feel like the story is shifting, even though it's actually layers of information being added on top of each other. Exactly. And people are trying to do their best, in a, as you say, in a fast-moving environment. So I've got lots of COVID questions for you today, Norman. I just want to remind our audience that if you love listening to Norman and Tegan answer questions about COVID, you should check out our podcast, Coronacast. But Jim is asking to uh, writing to ask whether you could report on basically what determines herd immunity. Um, he wants to talk about the R number of a disease, which is the number of cases that one positive case can spread to in an, in an otherwise sort of unvaccinated or un an immune population. So then how many people need to be vaccinated or immune for us to have herd immunity? Yeah, there's something that's missing from, I mean, I have to, you know, obviously Jim's an epidemiologist, but there's something missing from his question, a couple of things missing. One is the effectiveness of the vaccine. So if the vaccine does not prevent 100% of infection, then your, um, the, the, the proportion of the community that has to be immunised goes up. So in an ideal world with a perfect vaccine, then that's probably true that 50% will get you there. But that's not the case here. And then you've got, you've got variants which are highly contagious. Well, that increases the R number. So the R number, for example, with the Delta variant is six, not two. Um, and so if you combine that with the imperf- imperfect nature of the prevention of infection, even with the Pfizer vaccine, then you're getting up to very high levels. And... Christina Pargo of University College London thinks it, for Delta it could be up to 90%. So that, um, that does affect the herd immunity. And so does that just mean we need other protective layers between us and the virus beyond simply vaccination, important as that is? Yes, non-pharmaceutical interventions is what they call it, NPI, and it's about, it's about some social distancing, it's about looking after ventilation, and it's about wearing masks. And for some time to come, we're actually going to have to do that if we want to avoid lockdowns. And so on vaccines, Shelley's saying she went to her GP and asked if she could have a vaccination against COVID because she had Guillain-Barre syndrome in 1992. The GP said they were unsure but said probably not. So, uh, yeah, well, first question, Norman, let's explain what Guillain-Barre is and then what is the risk from the COVID vaccines that we know of? I think it's bigger with Astra and Johnson & Johnson. So this is... A, the vaccines have in the past caused Guillain-Barre. So there are vaccines around. I, I think from memory, the influenza vaccine can cause Guillain-Barre. So it's not unique to COVID-19 vaccines. So Guillain-Barre is an immune reaction, which the best way to describe it is it's almost like a temporary multiple sclerosis. It's a very different disease, but essentially you get the immune system attacking the, the sheaths, the insulation around nerves. And the nerves stop working. And so you, get, you can get a kind of ascending paralysis with it. So it's not, it's not random, really, like multiple sclerosis, which all sorts of nerves can be. And it can affect your breathing. Most people with Guillain-Barre suffer a mild disease and they recover well from it. But some people can have some dis- the disability from it. Famously, the writer of Catch-22, whose name I just have gone a complete blank on, <laughs> Sorry, Joseph Heller. He had, in fact, I interviewed him on the health report many years ago what? about his experience with Guillain-Barre. Um, he had Guillain-Barre, and I can't remember what caused it there. 
So I don't. It's th- super rare, though, right? Like we should say that it is, it's very, it, very rare. It is very rare, and it's very rare as a vaccine side effect. And the question here is which vaccine you should get. And really, I can't give you. We can't give you advice here on the health report. You've got to talk to a real doctor about this. And if your GP doesn't know, then perhaps you can actually make inquiries through the Therapeutic Goods Administration. And I'm not sure that ATAG has made a recommendation on this, but I think it is um, mostly Astra and Johnson & Johnson, and I think these instances possibly lower with Pfizer. Um, But you do need to get immunised with something and just got to sort out which. And one last question also on vaccines for you from Tim, who says, I understand that the Commonwealth is planning to distribute vaccines on a per capita basis to the states and territories, which when he first said that, I was like, yeah, why not? But then Tim makes the point that would it not make more sense to distribute the vaccine to the highest population densities where it's more likely that the virus is going to be transmitting? Well, I'll leave that to you because you've just interviewed Nancy Baxter on just that. Well, she didn't answer that question, Norman, so I don't know what to say. It is interesting, well, she isn't did, it? She did. Quote the. I thought she interestingly quoted the Toronto example of where they diverted um, vaccine from the rich areas of Toronto to the poorer areas with higher density populations to actually get them immunised faster. I yeah did think that's interesting, and that plays into the social determinants of health as well, which is uh, another sort of pet topic. And I suppose the question that I mean, on one hand, you could say yes, highest population densities, highest risk of viral transmission, but then perhaps people who live in cities with high population densities have better access to healthcare services, whereas if we were unlucky enough to have the virus get into a regional area where maybe there's not as good health services, it could wreak more havoc overall? True, but you just can't help thinking that um, the focus on the southwestern suburbs of Sydney and in the second wave in Victoria and the, northern, the northwest corridor in Melbourne um, if they'd had vaccine then and they've got vaccine now, why wouldn't you just completely blitz those suburbs and get them covered and get first doses into them as quickly as possible? Because they're high population centres? And they're sources of spread and just get the vaccine in there and get the first dose going um, and, and, and actually divert it from areas where there's not much virus circulating. Tim, it sounds like you might be onto something. And of course, if you want to ask us a question, you can email us healthreport at abc.net.au. We obviously love answering your COVID questions, but please also send in non-COVID questions too. Um, that's yeah, it for the health like report. a question of what happens when it goes red and falls off. You know, I've been waiting for that question for you know since we, we started the questions. question and answers. <laughs> well, that's it for this week. But we'll catch you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.